All right, let's do this. So we have been working through Colossians. I'm glad to see so many people here today because usually historically in the church, the Sunday after Easter is the lowest attended Sunday in, in church world. I guess everybody figured they'd done their duty, time to take a Sunday off. I think what's going for us is it's not, oh, there's sun coming in. Well, it's going to rain today, so this is the best place for you to be. Um, and it, it was good to see a lot of uh, guests last week, and, and uh, I hope that they heard the gospel message as we just kind of laid it out there for them. And uh, continue to pray for them, continue to pray for those people that might have heard it that don't normally go to church. But through our times together, we've been working through the book of Colossians. And I'm just going to get right into the, the text this morning, and we're going to chat. Colossians 2, 1 through 4 says this. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And so uh, we spent about 10 weeks in chapter 1 of Colossians. And uh, we went through it. And then there's towards the end of chapter 1, Paul kind of talks about Jesus and who Jesus is. His relationship to the Father. How we only find a reconciliation to God from Christ. And Paul wants to set it all up, make sure that everybody has a clear understanding of it. And then by the time we work through the end of chapter 1, Paul is going to talk about himself and his ministry. And now we see in chapter 2, he's going to begin to talk about the significance of his ministry to the church. So what he is preaching, what he is teaching, the life that he's living... And how this, inter, how this relates to the good of the people in the church. And he wants to make sure that people know that, that he is in this with them. He is struggling, contending in faith, in the things of faith for these people. People that he has never met. People that had never met him. People that, that never have sat down with him. Never had a shared a meal with him. He's probably never going to meet them. But he wants them to know that he's contending. He's struggling with them. In the faith that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out. Paul has this global vision of the gospel. A global vision of who Jesus Christ is. Not just for his church. Not for just the church he has planted or the churches he has planted. But for the church, capital C, in general. For all people that would come to Christ. He has this global uh, vision for it. He wants everyone to know who Christ is. He feels the weight of what God has called him to. He feels the weight of, of his calling in Jesus Christ to go and live this life. In fact, in the book of Acts, the story of Paul's conversion, uh, this, Jesus appears to this guy and Paul's bum and he's all blind and he's not eaten. And, and it says he's, he's praying and fasting, but I think he's just, you know, pouting a little bit because he was 
he was Saul. He was the man. He was persecuting people. People feared him. And now he's all curled up in a ball and he's crying because the Lord took his sight. And, and Jesus sends this guy Ananias to him. And he tells him some things, but he says this to him. You tell Paul, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Not, not the best thing you want to hear when you become a Christian. Hey, you believe in Jesus? Wait till you, uh, you're going to suffer. In so this is, what, this is the message that Paul gets. But you know what? He is willing. He is 100% willing to live and to do whatever it is that Jesus calls him to do. Whatever he needs to do for the kingdom and whatever he needs to, the ch- to do the, for the church. He will do it. And remember, he's writing this entire letter. He's in jail. He's in prison. And back then, there were no prisoners' rights. There were no libraries. There was no internet. You got put in a hole in the ground, maybe. And he wasn't there because he stole the camel or for, he wasn't there because he, he was charged with an RUI. He was there because of his, that's riding under the influence. They didn't have cars back then. He, he, was, he was there because of his faith and because he had to speak this faith. He had to live this faith no matter what the consequences were. He could not keep quiet. It burned within him. Nothing was going to silence him except later on in his life when he would meet with the sword. And then the voice of Paul was quieted. But his letters live on for thousands of years. And he wants these people to understand that he's with them. And he is struggling in in faith with them. He's contending with them. Why? So they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. That they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. You know, when we hear in the West, in our American culture, when we hear of the word, you know, heart, we attach to it this idea or the meaning that, that all it really means is this emotional state of being. So it's almost like if you just read this for, for what it is without digging a little deeper into it, it's almost like Paul is a big, a big cheerleader. You know, go team, go Christians, yeah, you can do this. That's not what it's talking about because in the scripture, when it talks about the heart, it talks about the very center of who you are, the center of your personality, the very core of, of the way you think and why you think that way and the thoughts that you have. Yes, it has to do with feelings, but it goes just... It goes way deeper than just an emotional state. It even goes into why you feel the way you're feeling, the source of who you are. And why is he doing this? Because remember, there are people in the church of Colossae that are bringing this message that is going contrary to what Paul has preached. Because Paul will preach, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. And there are people in this church that are saying And trying to persuade people away from that truth of Christ in Christ alone. And he he is struggling for them. They would know who Christ is. They would know the truth of the gospel. And he is willing to pour himself out on this journey of faith. 
And so at the deepest part of their being, he is trying to strengthen them and build them up in this truth. And that they would be united in love, the love of Christ. He knows that false teaching in a community of faith causes dissension. Dissension causes fighting. And fighting will tear apart a church. Fighting causes disunity. And he doesn't want to see the church go in that direction. And so he's encouraging them. And he wants to, to bring them united in the love of Jesus because he knows that that in unity there is strength in unity there is momentum when there is unity in a community of faith the grace of God is at work and it's transforming people and it can transform that faith community and it can reach out beyond those walls and transform the community that uh, that, that, uh, that 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 church is in and so he sees this as so important and you know I'm as I wrestled with this over the week, I wonder, I wonder why we have lost that passion. That we have lost that passion that we would struggle in our pursuit of Jesus. That we would, be, that we would contend for others that we might not even meet for their good. That we would struggle... In the things that Christ has called us to, to press on through them no matter what. See, I think in our, I believe that in our church world, that faith has become this very personal thing. This is between me and Jesus. And, and there is some truth to that. But your faith was never meant to be lived privately. It's, it was meant to be lived in the context of community. And so if you just say, hey, this is just between me and Jesus, what you're saying is, I want to live in my sin. Don't talk to me about it. I'll handle it. And we hide and we run and we make our faith about us. It's our little individual worlds. And we kind of block everybody out. And we're not even willing to, to struggle and contend in our faith for people that are closest to us and that we, and that we love, let alone people we'll never meet. Now, let me tell you something. Hear me on this. Your journey of faith, your pursuit of Jesus can have an effect on people you may never meet. There's a story about a guy named Earl and Earl worked for this company. And uh, in this company, Earl was the only other Christian. There was another Christian person, but that Christian person wasn't, you know, he was in, first of all, he was in a different department. And so Earl worked in this department in this small company. And he wasn't a jerk about his faith. He wasn't a Ned Flanders with it. He was just out there and he was living his faith. And he got made fun of a lot. People would poke, you know, poke jabs at him. They would just kind of uh, call him uh, the good Christian boy, though he was an older man. And Earl just, he just kept right on moving through and living his life for Jesus. And people would try to be vulgar and, and crude in front of him just because Earl was a Christian. And Christians don't like to hear those things. Christians don't like to say those things. Of course, unless you're driving in your car, then it's okay for you to say those things. And Earl, Earl would just, he wouldn't get upset with anyone. He wouldn't get frustrated. He wouldn't get angry. He wouldn't lash out. He would just kind of take whatever jabs they wanted to jab at him, and he would just go along. And sometimes they would find him reading his Bible at lunch, and that was fodder for a lot of fun making. 
But he didn't care. He just continued to do what he would do. And he never entered into any of the company gossip. And he is always back on time from lunch breaks and from daily breaks. He, he came in early when they asked him to. He stayed late when they asked him to. And he never did it boisterously. He always kind of just was under the radar with it. And every once in a while, people would ask him about this Jesus thing because he was, he was living his life for Christ. And he would get the opportunity to talk and to explain a little bit about Jesus. And, and that would just add a little bit more fuel to their fire, poking fun at him and, and laughing at him because, you know, he was weak and he needed Jesus to help him along. And these people, I guess, had it all together. And But Earl would just live his life for Christ. And this went on for a bunch of years. And then after a while, one person in that whole place, they became a Christian by watching what this guy Earl was doing and having a few conversations with him. One person out of, out of a company of like 50 people. One person. And Earl discipled this one person. They would go out to their lunch and they would read the Bible and they would just talk about it. And then after a short amount of time, the company decided they were going to restructure or, or whatever they were doing. And they, they let Earl go. And then this one person was left at this company a Christian, a new Christian. And then through a series of events, that person became the pastor of Oasis Church. And you are feeling the ripple effect of a man you have never met. He's never even written you a letter. And you will probably never meet him. When I was preparing this week... I felt a little nostalgic, and I, and I tried to look for him. I knew he lived in Torrington, and I can't find his number. I, can't, I don't know where he lives anymore. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. But you are feeling the effect, good or bad, <laughs> of a man that you have never met, a man that contended and struggled in his faith, in the face of, of people making fun of him, of laughing at him, of being crude and obnoxious in front of him. And he just, he just stayed on this path because Jesus was the most important thing to him. Eighteen years later, you feel the effect of that. One man. And you have never met him. Paul gets it. Paul understands how important the, his journey of faith is, especially to people that he may never meet. And he wants them to know about Christ. And he wants them to know the story of Jesus. And he's doing it so that we would understand, that those people would understand the mystery of God that is Jesus Christ. And that they wouldn't be deceived by any fine-sounding arguments. By anything that, that, that kind of sounded kind of good, and yeah, maybe we can buy that, because there was people in the church of Colossae that were talking junk. They were, they were talking things, they were speaking things that were not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they actually sounded like they knew what they were talking about. It sounded, it sounded reasonable, it sounded plausible, that yeah, yeah maybe, maybe, that could, yeah, maybe that could be it. You see, throughout history, people have been trying to add to the gospel of Christ and add something to it, Jesus plus something, or they've been trying to water it down. 
And Paul wants to get to the heart and to the root of that and said, listen, don't be persuaded by these people who sound like they know what they're talking about. If it's Jesus plus something, it's wrong. Time and time again, in our day and age, we could look and we could see all kinds of poor theologies being spread out there. Go to, go to a bookstore and go to the Christian section, section and see how many books there are on using the Bible as your self-help guide. And there are, you can go from two easy steps right up into a dozen of them. And so the Bible in this poor theology, and I'm going to go on a rant for a few minutes, but you know, give me time. I'll get to there. Uh, the, the Bible gets used as the roadmap for life. This is our owner's manual. Basic instructions before leaving earth. <laughs> I gagged a little. And so we make this about us. And the people that have written these books, they bring in all of these very good-sounding, persuasive arguments why the Bible is the roadmap for life. But see, it's not. And let me tell you why. Because if we use this to make it all about us, then we've used the Bible to make it all about us. And it's not all about us. It's always been about God. Our salvation isn't about us. God felt sorry for us. Well, let me save those poor decrepit creatures No, it's always been about him. And when we start making it about us, we lose the message of the Bible. It's about him and for his glory. It's always been that way. And so the self-help gospel has been around forever, but it's no gospel at all. It's not good news. And I'll tell you why it doesn't work. But they have fine sounding arguments to make us think that it works. But in the end, when you've memorized all of the verses in the Bible that, about not having any, any anxiety. And you live your life trying to memorize all of these verses and it's not working. And you've got to memorize more verses and more. And it doesn't seem to be working. And then you get anxious because you're not, not being anxious anymore. And is God actually care? Does he care about me? Is he helping me? Does he even hear me? And it's dangerous because you can walk away from it all. Let me tell you something. Memorizing verses doesn't heal you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in you that heals you. The Bible isn't God. The Bible is the revelation of God. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that saves and heals. And I believe God wants to heal. But don't you think for a minute that all you have to do is memorize some verses, go to church every Sunday, lift your hands when you sing some songs, and it's, you're good. It's the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, that we are saved. It's our pursuit of the character and nature of God and understanding that through faith that we are saved. Not your church attendance. 
Paul's going to, he's going to rant on a little bit more through this. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. (laughs) See to it that no one enslaves you. No one puts you in bondage. No one makes you a prisoner of something that's false, something that's hollow, something that's deceptive, something that's wrong. And, and, and the, this, the, the end of this verse is huge. Base, it depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What he's talking about is demonic influence. And in church world, sometimes we fall on either one of two extremes. Sometimes we make it all about the devil. And everything is the devil's attack. And, and everything is about everything that goes wrong, every sneeze, every cold, every flat tire, every bump in the road, that's the devil. Or we pay no attention to it. And, well, there is no devil. I'm telling you that the biggest deception that the devil wants us to believe is that he doesn't exist. Well, look at what Paul's saying. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the devil. This is taking place in the church. People are being led astray in the church by deceptive philosophies based on human tradition, finding its origins in demonic influence. In the church that I mentioned in the church. Church. So let me, let me just go on another rant to give you an example of this. We move from the self-help gospel. It's all about us. And we move into something that's prominent on TV today. It's called the prosperity gospel. I don't want to mention any names because I know some of you like to watch Joyce Myers and Joel Osteen. But, but so, only kidding. I love those guys in the name of Jesus. But what they teach from one extreme is God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have lots of money. Because a child of the king should not have to walk around in clothes that are all ragged. In a broken down car, a child of the king should not have to live in a small little house and suffer through an iPhone 4. And so God wants you to have money. And all you do, all you need to do is is have some faith and speak it and it's going to happen. That's basically the prosperity gospel. And then on the other side of it, Maybe not so extreme, they would say along the lines of uh, they, they minimize pain and they minimize suffering and they minimize sin. And all you need to do is follow Jesus and just, just kind of love on him and, and, and have just, just, just follow Jesus. And eventually you're going to get the big house and you'll get the nice car and, and you'll get, you'll get the, the big bank accounts and, and you'll get that new job. You just got to follow Jesus. 
If that was true, my 2012 Harley Davidson would be out in the parking lot right now. All right? Amen, my little brother. He wants me to have one. It is deceptive, hollow philosophies based on human tradition of greed, finding its origins and demonic influence, and, and it goes against what the Bible speaks of. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to make a lot of money. It really, it's, it's not. But to hoard money, to have that be your God, to, to use God to actually get rich, Man, you are, you've been led astray. I just want to read this quick verse in 1 Timothy. I want to show you just one verse which speaks to this. But godliness with contentment, this is uh, chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But, we, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Hmm. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And there are verse after verse that talks about people going after money and not after God. But Paul is not going to just leave us with the warning. Paul is going to bring us into a place of, of how we can begin to live and guard ourselves against these, these, these uh, destructive philosophies. He'll say this. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined, remember that word, disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. We need to continue to live in Jesus. And what this speaks of is this ever-deepening, ever-growing relationship with Christ. It's something that's vibrant. It's something that's alive. To walk with Jesus is to be in a relationship with him. And so things like prayer and the scriptures become a means to that end. It's Christ and Christ alone that's the important thing. And everything that we do in the context of faith brings us to him. Healthy relationships grow. Maybe some grow slow. Maybe for some they grow fast. Maybe for some they grow fast for a while. They slow down. They grow fast. But they are always growing. Don't let anything pull you away from your relationship with Jesus. That we would walk with him. And it says we would walk with him and rooted and built up in him. Here's, here's what I want to ask you guys. I'm begging with you. Take your faith seriously. Take your faith seriously. If all you're doing is coming here and listening to me a few times a month, it's not enough. 
If this is your engagement with Christ on a Sunday morning, it's not enough. Take your faith serious. You need to be learning and studying and engaging who God is. I would even push it farther. You should be reading people that are way smarter than anyone in this room. People like A.W. Tozer, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson, R.C. Sproul. Any person that has two initials for their first name, they're wicked smart. (laughs) And you have to, have to understand who God is. Sunday morning is not enough to be rooted and built up in him. Sunday morning is not enough for you to be able to call that deceptive and hollow, and I will not follow it. Listening to me is just not enough. You need to engage the scripture. Because in these words, our life, because they point us to Christ. You have to be in the scripture. How can you know who God is? How can you walk with him if you know nothing about him? Some of you don't even know where your Bible is. And you haven't opened it in forever. It's not enough just to read our daily bread a couple times a week. And prayer, you have to be in prayer, not to make prayer your God, but prayer points us to him. It brings us to him. And not just emergency room prayers. Oh my God, I need you to fix this. Oh my goodness, I have this going. No, not just those. Deep, intimate times of of meditating and being with him in the word. That's what roots you. That's what builds you up so that you can call deception and hollowness for what it is. And you won't be led astray. Listening to me a few times a month isn't enough. I preach. Preaching is proclaiming the word of God. Paul said he's thankful that they are disciplined. And moving toward Christ. You have to go deeper. You have to go deeper. I'm begging you. Take your faith. Something that's very serious. And then you'll be strengthened in faith. And overflowing with thankfulness. You will never walk in thankfulness. If you believe God to be your get-rich-quick scheme. Or if he's your self-help guru right up there with Oprah and Montel. You will never walk in thankfulness. Most of us, most of us aren't going to be wealthy. I'm just laying it right out there for you now. God loves broke people because he's made so many of us. Most of us aren't going to be wealthy. 
But the amount of money you have in your checking account or your bank accounts has very little to do with God's blessing and God's favor on you. I know some people that have nothing. They have nothing. And they have this vibrant, deep relationship with Jesus. And they love him. And yet they have nothing that the world will look at as as having any value. But they have Christ and Christ alone. And I know people, I know people who suffer from depression and anxiety. And they haven't been healed from it. And they love Jesus. And he's the most important thing in their life. I don't know why they haven't been healed. But for whatever reason, God hasn't chosen yet to heal them. And just because you might be suffering with something doesn't mean the favor of the Lord has been lifted from you. It just very well me might be his favor resting upon you. Charles Spurgeon, you ever hear that name? Amazing preacher, wrote over like a hundred books, started an orphanage, started a pastor's college, suffered from depression most of his adult life. There were times where he couldn't even get out of bed, but he stayed the course. Because he understood who God is. You know, it's easy to be thankful with God when everything is going peachy keen. Everything is all good. You're feeling good. You know, you got the big car. You got the nice house. You got lots of money in your checking account. And emotional, your emotional and mental state is just pristine, which, come on, have you met you? <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't happen. But God is most glorified. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. In him, in the pain, in the depression, in the anxiety, when we get the pink slip. When we can't figure it out, when there's no more money in the checking account. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him during those times. And when you could come to a place when, man, it, it, just, it just hits the fan and it all falls apart. And you can say, God is enough. God is enough and he's going to get me through this. He will sustain me through this. My heart is broken. It's being torn out of my chest. But I know that God is enough. You will come to a place. You will begin to walk in a place of thankfulness. How can you be thankful to a God when you expect him to give you lots of money and you ain't getting lots of money? How can you be thankful to a God when you're naming it and claiming it and you ain't getting nothing? Because those are false, dangerous, hollow, deceptive philosophies built on human tradition and on demonic spirituality. But to know that during this life, no matter what, no matter what, he is enough. He 
is enough. You will begin to live a life of thankfulness. Our entire church. We need to get on this man. We need to be pursuing Christ with everything in our being. Making him the number one thing in our life. That we would be built up, strengthened in our faith. That we would live a life of thankfulness. That we won't be deceived and pulled away. You gotta press in hard. You have to press in hard because you never know how far the ripples of your faith life will extend beyond you. You never know. Lord, I want to thank you for your word and that you've caused it to be written. I pray that we would take it, digest it, and live it. May your grace be upon us. May you continue to pour out your mercy on us. Let us walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and in forgiveness. And may you be glorified. Amen. I love you all. I'll see you next week.